The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 1, 19-30. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Molly. So, uh, welcome everybody. Good to be with you uh, today. I just want to start by... Uh, sharing a little bit of an awkward moment that I had this past um, this past week. So I drink out of these bottles on a on a regular basis, and uh, the way that I clean them is at night I will fill them with a combination of dish soap and hot water, and then I'll shake it up, put it on, leave it overnight, let it kind of clean itself, and then off to the races again with fresh water the next morning. And so recently, uh, I came down, still sort of half asleep, I suppose, and I got my bottle and I opened it up, and instead of going through my complete routine, I just started guzzling, and um, that didn't go well. It made me feel nauseous. You know, for this bottle to be able to do its job well, I have to drain and then refill to to get the nauseating stuff out and then refill it with pure water and then um, I can go about my day. But um, what we've got in front of us today in this last part of the, the first chapter of Philippians is a picture of the human soul as a container. And just like this bottle, the container that is the human soul also needs constant draining and refilling. Draining out that which is actually going to lead to nauseous and even deadly experiences and, and filling it with that which is pure and good and beautiful. So to put it bluntly, um, what I'm after this morning is, is what I believe 
that Paul, at least in part, is after as well in these, these verses. And it's this, to convince you that the more you look inside yourself for the answers, for the, the happiness you want, for your direction in life, the more you look inside of you, the more nauseating things are going to become. If not in the short term, then in the long term. And the more you look outside of yourself to a greater source than yourself, namely Jesus Christ, uh, the more refreshing of an experience it's going to be, even in the valleys, just as well as at the mountaintops, even at the valleys. And so, what I want to do is just run through three ways that we foolishly and erroneously look within ourselves for the answer when we actually would be much better off looking outside of ourselves. The first is the futile search for a morality within, and then the second is for a meaning within, and then finally for a courage within. None of these things can be found within ourselves. All of them can be found outside of ourselves. And so, let's start with the futile search for a morality within. This is when the truth is replaced with my truth. These days, my truth is actually a very popular phrase that's used in a lot of different contexts and discussions and dialogues. But this is what the world has been saying ever since the world began, ever since the serpent slithered into the garden and started whispering into the ears of Adam and Eve. There's an internal guide that you can trust. There's an internal compass that you can follow, and you don't need anything but yourself to determine what your truth is supposed to be and what path you are supposed to follow according to your truth. You know, Jiminy Cricket put it this way, let your conscience be your guide. Tom Petty put it this way, listen to your heart, it's going to tell you what to do. It's a great song, by the way, rhythmically. Theologically, it's not so good. All these things are actually partially true. Let your conscience be your guide, listen to your heart, but, but, but this can only be true, according to Paul, when your heart, when your conscience, when your truth on the inside has been formed by a truth that Paul calls the truth, with a capital T that comes to you from the outside to shape your inside to then direct your your life, your thoughts, your words, and your doings. And so, so the New Testament letters are actually full of different descriptions of this inner conflict between two different uh, uh, views or understanding, uh, understandings of truth. You, you see it in Romans 7 where Paul talks about a war that's going on inside of him between two sets of desires. There's the sin-desiring aspect of Paul, and then there's the God-desiring aspect of Paul, and they're always colliding with one another. They're always in conflict. Romans chapter 8 talks about how the flesh is at war inside of us with the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says there's the old man, and then there's the new man that's been formed by Jesus Christ. And, and, and the old man still kind of lingers with us and tries to regain control 
on a daily basis. And so, Paul in verse 30 here actually uses the word conflict to describe his own life. And, and it's this word conflict and, 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 and everything around it that's actually landed him in jail, which is where he's writing this letter from. Paul is not only conflicted inside himself, you know, the truth within Paul is also on a collision course with what the Roman society might have called Roman truth. So, here are a few examples. Sex and money. Rome, much like contemporary Western America would say, be promiscuous with your body and be protective of your money. But the truth that had made itself into Paul says the opposite. Be promiscuous with your money through radical generosity and be protective of your body through sexual purity, chastity. Then there's another example, the use of power and privilege. So, Roman truth would say, subjugate the world in order to benefit yourself. Perfectly fine in Roman society to deny your neighbor, take up your comforts, and follow your dreams no matter who you have to run over or ignore or neglect in order to accomplish that goal. And here's how it played out. You know, as, as, as Rome operated out of the truth that the most deeply, core, deeply held core value in life is self-actualization, here's some of the fruit. Prostitution, the devaluation of women and children, infanticide, slavery, class warfare, might means right, abuse. So, while Roman truth, so-called truth, is saying subjugate the world in order to benefit yourself, Paul, having been formed by the truth outside of himself, is saying the opposite. Subjugate yourself in service of Jesus Christ and your neighbor. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. You don't belong to you. There is one who is the boss of you. And by the way, that's actually good for you. That's actually the most life-giving scenario for you, for you to take your hands off your life and surrender to a truth outside of yourself for your flourishing and for the benefit of everybody around you and for the glory of God. You know, Paul puts it this way in verse 27, Live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is his reason for living. And he, he says to the Philippians, this should be all of our reason for living. Fruitful labor on others' account. So, one of the things we do as a church is we, we do these things uh, every now and again called public forums, and we'll, we'll host uh, and curate conversations about matters of, of, of deep interest to people. Uh, and 
the one that we did the Sunday night before the last presidential election. We had Governor Haslam, and, who's a Republican, and Michael Ware, who's a Democrat, used to serve as an aide in the Obama administration, both of them modeling what a civil discussion as fellow followers of Christ who have some political differences on certain things and yet who also depart from their own party platforms on certain things because of their loyalty to Christ. You know, Michael Ware is staunchly pro-life, for instance, you know, and Governor Haslam is staunchly pro-immigrant, pro-refugee and mercy and justice and so on. But one of the things you may remember if you were here that Michael Ware said was this. When you go into the voting booth this week, as a Christian, this is what you should be thinking. How can I use this little bit of power that I have as a means by which to love my neighbor as myself? My goal is not to deny my neighbor, take up my comforts and follow my dreams and use my little bit of power in order to accomplish that. It's the opposite. It's to deny myself, to take up a cross and follow Jesus and use this as one way to love my neighbor as myself, even being willing to give up a few things, a few comforts, and a few dreams of my own so the tide can rise for some other people. By the way, However you end up pulling the lever or leaning, you've got to be thinking that way. German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was nauseated by this thought of an other-oriented vision for your life. It disgusted him. And so, you know, his whole philosophy, philosophy was declare the death of God. Here's an excerpt. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed Him. How shall we, murderers of all murderers, console ourselves? That which was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? But here's what you've got to respect about Nietzsche. He took his God-is-dead philosophy to its logical conclusion. He did not commit intellectual suicide. He went on to say that because God is dead, nobody can say that they have the truth. It's your truth against my truth, and whoever has the most power wins. Call it social Darwinism, call it whatever you want. But that's the consequence of me having the right to decide what my truth is and you having the same right. There is also, in that scenario, no moral basis to be mad about anything. But how about child abuse? It's wrong, says who? How about stealing? That's wrong, says who? How about sex trafficking, racism, sexism, genocide? Those things are clearly wrong, says who? You see? You see what corner your truth is backing you into? Because if all truth is equally valid, 
then there is no truth that gets to evaluate any of it. Well, then the majority decides. Well, then that begs the question, whose majority? 21st century American majority or 21st century uh, Sudanese majority? Whose majority gets to decide? 21st century American majority or 1950s American majority? You know, our great-grandparents would be repulsed by some of the things that we hold as deeply held core values now, and vice versa. But it's even worse. We're inconsistent with ourselves. You know, those who are… I'm going to needle you a little bit here. Those who are the most outspoken and the most outraged in the Me Too movement also happen to be those who memorialized Hugh Hefner as a civil rights hero. You can't have it both ways, and yet there are people trying to have it both ways. That this man was a civil rights activist and hero, and he was also the man who created the climate for Me Too to happen. You can't even be consistent with yourself. And then some of us were zealous about impeaching one politician a couple of decades ago for predatorial behavior, but we're willing to give another politician a free pass on the same things. And by the way, if you're nodding your head as a Democrat, this was you 20 years ago. Nobody's off the hook on this stuff. You can't even be consistent with yourself because it's your truth. Your truth is a little bitty thing, and it will get crushed unless you surrender it, unless you drain it, that it might be refilled. Here's Paul's answer. Morality cannot come from within. It must come from a universal, objective source from the outside. This is why he says in verse 25, I'm desiring your progress and joy not through self-actualization, but your progress in joy in the faith. He doesn't say, let your manner of life be true to yourself. He doesn't say that. Nowhere can you find that in the Scripture. What he says is, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ standing firm in that. Listen to God's truth, to God's heart, to God's conscience over and against your own. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Otherwise, we're just nominal Christians playing church, being good cultural Christians. He's calling us to something higher. When the truth of God affirms the truth in the conscience and the heart within us, then we need to build on that. But when the truth of God critiques the truth, so-called truth in the conscience and the heart within us, it's time to drain and refill to everybody's benefit, including our own. So, there's another futile search, and that is the search for meaning within. You know, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Colossians 3 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. I mean, we sang it just a few moments ago, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. The degree to which we believe that is the degree to which beauty starts to form in us and around us. But the recipe for 
for nausea is to make something besides Christ our life, to, to make something besides Christ our ultimate thing, our bottom line, our, our true north. When, when God is functionally dead to us, we will still continue to worship because we are made, designed, fashioned to worship and serve. It's in our DNA. It's who we are. It's what we're about. We give ourselves away every day to something or to someone. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 1 that there are all kinds of my truths that we give ourselves away to. Paul calls them created things. And we, we exchange the glory of God for created things. Another word for it is idolatry. Casey, Pastor Casey referred to it uh, earlier in the service. But the result is this, that, that, that when I try to quench my thirst with a created thing, I become more thirsty. If I try to satisfy my hunger with it, I become more hungry. If I try to create happiness for myself in that way, I become sad. If I try to free myself with a creative, created thing, I, I end up becoming enslaved to it. If I seek ultimate joy in a created thing, it makes me anxious and afraid. All honest people know this. You know, David Foster Wallace was a Pulitzer nominee and very gifted thinker and college professor, took his own life uh, ultimately. He said some very wise things. Here's one of them. There's actually no such thing as atheism, Foster Wallace says. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason to choose some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And, and yet, here we have Paul, stripped of everything that people would build their lives on in first century Rome. Whether they were religious or not, he's stripped of everything that people would build their lives upon. He's nonetheless poised, sleeping deeply, at rest. He's been sidelined in his career. He's stuck in a prison cell. He can't be around his friends. He, he's in solitary. He's lost all comfort and lost all sense of control. He's beaten regularly. He is at the mercy of a Roman state that has no mercy to speak of. He has no wife, no kids, no family because he's been called to be a single man. And from this, he says, for me, to live is Christ. Reminds me of that uh, story of, of the little girl who was asked to recite the 23rd Psalm in front of her church. And she gets up and she says, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. 
not too far off. Paul has tunnel vision here, only one goal, whether in life or in death, and it's this, that Christ be honored in my body. For Paul, even suffering is turned under Christ into an asset. In verse 29, it has been granted, this is the same word that is translated everywhere else in the New Testament as grace, charis. We get our word charity from it. It is a charity from God. It is a grace from God, not only that you believe in Christ, but you have been given an opportunity also to suffer for His sake. He said, this is all turning out for my deliverance. Now, when he's talking about deliverance, he's not talking about his release in prison. Did you ever notice that in the prayers of Paul, when he's writing from prison, asking for prayer, he never asks that God will open up the prison doors and set him free, change the minds of the authorities, work through this? He never asks for that. His prayers are for the development of character and the enhancement of salvation and the enhancement of the glory of Christ in the world. That's what he says, that God would use even this to bring glory to Himself. Prison will turn out for my deliverance. Everywhere else this word is used, virtually, it is translated salvation. I think what Paul is after is this, my suffering is saving me from myself, from my pride, from my own proclivities toward idolatry. It is healing my character. As the outer man wastes away, as he says elsewhere, the inner man is being renewed every single day. That's the real goal, folks. Sex, money, power, wealth, money, killer education, those are fine things, but those aren't the ultimate goals. The ultimate goal is that Christ be formed in us. You know, I like to use this analogy every now and then. You're baking some pastries or cookies or something. You, you throw in there all kinds of ingredients, and, and many of which, if you take them in by themselves, are bitter. Salt, um, baking powder, baking soda, bitter, give you dry mouth. Some of the ingredients are nauseating by themselves. Raw eggs and, and a stick of butter, if you, you just eat those by themselves, you're, you're going to feel as irpy as I did when I drank soap water. But when you throw them together and then you turn the heat up for a while, when you really cook them, they come out just, you know, like, like manna, like this wonderfully sweet, delicious thing. That's how God works. You feel you're getting weaker. You may actually be getting stronger. You feel like God has thrown you a bitter pill. He might actually have thrown you the pill that's going to heal you and give you life. The other thing we can't find in ourselves, finally, is the courage that we need to navigate all this. You know, Paul's aim for the Philippians is that they be full of faith instead of being full of fear. And that courage also is going to come to them from the outside. I long to hear that you are standing firm for the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. In other words, what's happened to me, getting thrown in prison and getting beaten and persecuted, may happen to some of you. The more loyal you are to Jesus, the more likely you are to be mistreated in the world, he's saying. But he goes on to, to say this, if you fear God, you will never have any reason to be afraid of anything or anyone. Look at me, for example. Look at me. Did you know 365 times in, in the Bible, 365 times, 
the most repeated command in Scripture is given to us. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. How can this be? It's because of what Jesus said in the Great Commission. I am with you always to the very end of the age. I will never leave you. All you have is Christ, and you always have Christ when you are in Christ. But this is not just true for the curveballs that, that, that this life throws to us. He also says to die is gain. To die is to be even more fully with Christ than I can be here on my very best day. I've recently had conversations with a couple of different doctors in our church community, both of whom regularly experience um, the bedside when somebody's about to die, and, and both of them essentially relayed the same reality. There are two kinds of people at the deathbed. There are those who are facing death terrified and fighting the despair, and then there are others who are just pretty much chill. And the ones who are pretty much chill are the ones who have somehow along the way experienced the draining and the refilling and discovered all I have is Christ, all I need is Christ, and I always have Christ when I'm in Christ. You know, otherwise, you know, if we try to muster up the courage from within, we, 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 we go in one of two dysfunctional directions. We either become the Stoics like Jimmy Cagney in the movie when, when he's, you know, when he's, when he's flying the airplane and it's, it's doing a free fall and he's surrounded by mountains and right before the plane crashes, he, he looks at the mountain and he spits at the mountain, you know, defying it, you know, shoving his middle finger in the face of death. How'd that work out for you? The tough guy thing only lasts for so long. But then the other extreme is sappy sentimentalism. Oh, she's in a better place. She's happier now. She's looking down upon us. She's one of our, he's one of our angels now. And, and, and that's some of the saddest funeral talk when there's no anchoring in Christ. See, see, these things can actually be true when there's anchoring in what Paul is anchored to here that to die is gain just as well as to live is Christ. But it has to come from the outside. This deliverance is both for this life and also the life to come. You know, this is what the resurrection of Jesus and, and, and the Lord's table both promise to us. That if you are a Christian, then you will be forever young. You will always, even a hundred thousand years from now, have infinitely more days ahead of you than you do behind you. Your best will always be yet to come and never in the past. Why? How do we know this? Because of Christ's singular vision to honor you with His body, making you His bride, giving His life for you on the cross, saying essentially, to live for me is you and to die for me is gain. And what do I gain? I gain you as my bride. You are my life. Let's take that in. Let's drain and refill, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, all we have is Christ. 
That's all you've promised us. That's all we can count on. Both in life, which can sometimes be very, very difficult and painful and anticlimactic, and in death, which is coming for all of us, if all we have is Christ, we can be completely stripped and completely free at the same time. On the depressing peaks of life, like the writer of Ecclesiastes experienced, and on the rigorous valleys of life, like Paul the Apostle experienced repeatedly, teach us what it means to really mean it. Father, mortify and, and, and just drain the heck out of our sappy, nominal, sentimental, non-committal, self-centered, cultural Christianity, which is not of Jesus. It's a terrible counterfeit. Refill all of that with, for me, to live is Christ, and to die in Christ and with Christ is gain. May it be so. In your name we pray. Amen.